poverty is constraints on a person that kind of holds them back from flourishing. And so I think all people face aspects of poverty in their life. You know, when we look at constraints that confine us, hold us back, some it's more obvious than others. Welcome to the Ending Poverty Together podcast. I'm Eric. And I'm Shalane. We're here to discuss big questions about poverty in bite-sized ways. I am really grateful that today we have with us Jenny Schantz, the Executive Director of Inner Hope Youth Ministries. And Jenny, you are um, someone who I look to and some as an inspiration and someone whose story has really actually had a significant impact in my own life. And so I'm very grateful that you are willing to spend some time here with us today. Welcome. Uh, thank you. It's really an honor to be here. I would love to just hear a little bit about your story. So how did you come to be at Inner Hope Ministries? Well, when I was uh, 17, I was in like a, a leader and training program at Camp Kwanos on Vancouver Island. And there was an inner city church that helped to register children and youth for summer camp who lived in low-income housing complexes in Vancouver. And so they would sign them up um, if their families were on welfare. Uh, at the time, the ministry would pay up to $200 per kid uh, towards a week of summer camp. And then they would drive the kids to the ferry and pick them up at the end of the week. And so the first week of the summer, I had two girls in my cabin who came from the inner city and had gone through a lot of trauma in their life. And so the second week, I really kept my eye out for the kids that were going to come over the second week. The second week, they were uh, nine to 11 year olds that came, a group of 20 of them. And one nine year old boy told me that his stepdad was in jail for molesting him and his mom was in a treatment center. He was staying at his grandma's. Um, he couldn't read. And he invited me to his birthday party in mm -hmm. August, which was basically a group oh. of kids hanging out. <laughs> side at the, the complex, um, Little Mountain off of Maine and 33rd. Mm. And so those kids really just changed my life. And the next summer I interned with that church to be able to spend more time with those kids and the youth that I'd gotten to know. And they, they just changed my life. And over the years, just been involved in different ways and in supporting them. And then there were a lot of needs that I saw that weren't being addressed through uh, local churches, needs for at times for safe places to stay or um, just practical support in their lives, accompanying them to court hearings or, or being an advocate or a support in their education and um, just the different things they came to me and asked me for help with. And um, and those relationships just grew um, really, really strong. And um, a number of them started to live with me. And, you know, I had a roommate, Carla Dickinson, that was um, had become kind of a co-partner in ministry, and we realized that a lot of these things were bigger than what we could do on our own. So in 2007, we launched uh, In Our Hope Youth Ministries. Jenny, as you're describing, just the variety of ways that you've shown up in different ministry capacities, it speaks to us humans not being kind of one-dimensional and that we have so many different types of needs and the populations that you have been working with have many different needs. And, you know, a big part of our podcast being Ending Poverty Together is we ask all of our guests, you know, how would you finish the sentence, 
poverty is dot 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 mm-hmm. and just in hearing your answers i already have some some mm-hmm. thoughts maybe about where you'll go with it but i'd love to hear you know how would you finish that sentence mm-hmm. in light of the experiences that you've had in ministry yeah i think poverty is constraints on a person that kind of holds them back from flourishing and mm-hmm. so Um, I think all people face aspects of poverty in their life. You know, when we look at constraints that confine us, hold us back, some it's more obvious than others, you know, and things like depression can be an emotional weight that can be debilitating at times for people who you see have have led dynamic lives and then have a season where they're struggling to function. Lack Mm -hmm. of supportive community and relationships. Some people are surrounded by families and friends and and colleagues or, or, or church community that just constantly upholds them and, and resources them and others that really are lonely and, and only have one or two people in their lives and when hard times come are so depleted. But then you have the material poverty with sometimes we're aware of, of basic needs, you know, um, food, housing, but when you're when you're living uh, below the poverty line and you really don't have much extra margin, there's so many life, life circumstances that can just really be so much more traumatizing when you don't have the resources. Even a death in the family, if there aren't resources to be able to visit a loved one before they die or get to a funeral or be able to, you know, maybe afford a casket and, and it kind of can constrict the choices um, that happen. We had one horrible incident where where one of our moms who'd been on our advisory committee and, and been so involved in the community, she had a daughter who was murdered in Alberta. And um, because it was out of province, welfare is provincial and they wouldn't pay to transport her to BC. And the family mm-hmm. was mostly in BC And the mom had never flown before, didn't have any resources. And in the end, I flew with her to Alberta to view her daughter's body. And then they cremated it and she was able to bring the ashes back. But unfortunately, the siblings, you know, weren't and the father and, and, you know, close friends weren't able to actually be a part of viewing her and and Mm -hmm. having that time to to grieve. Um, And so it's just... When I think of those with resources, even when you go through trauma, you have a bit more flexibility to navigate those things in a way that helps you grieve and move through that trauma. And poverty can prevent, you just have so many barriers. Um, mm-hmm. And then yeah. also, it's just the systemic oppression and inequality that perpetuates poverty. And so, um, you know, some people um, have a lot more. Um, to overcome and to fight against, to break Mm. out of those strongholds that hold them back. Wow. What you shared there is just packed and loaded with different directions that we could go. Um, I am, again, moved by the fact that you got on a plane and went with this woman. And it reminds me of the idea of moving into the neighborhood and participating in people's lives and walking directly with them. You know, you talked early on when you, we first started about you had people living with you before you even started Inner Hope. How, how does that work for you in terms of what's your life like day to day? 
Yeah, so for, I've had about 50 young people live with me over the years. I think I have my 50th kid with me right now. Um, it's, you, it's always been just in responsive to needs. So um, in 2001, my roommate actually had been talking with one of the moms who was really battling alcohol addiction in a big way that was really impacting her ability to parent her, her kids. She wanted to go to a treatment center, but wanted the kids to stay with people she knew while she was in treatment. And so Carla offered to take the two-year-old twins, <laughs> and I'd never parented before, and literally we had, I think we had like a week or something, like not long to prepare, and wow. so that was a massive learning curve. And then, and so that was, I think in February, they came to us, and they were with us for seven weeks, and then the mom left treatment, and the kids went back to her. Um, that summer, there was a 13-year-old that ran away to our house, and the social worker basically said, you know, we only have group homes with staff, like kind of day shift, evening shift, night shift. It's not really a great environment for a young teen, because a lot of the kids in group homes are older teenagers who could be not the best influences. Um, so they said, like, is would you by any chance be willing to take her? So I actually did the training to become a restricted foster parent. Um, just like an, an arrangement as a family friend. Um, she was in my youth group um, at the church. And so she stayed for three and a half months. Um, we had one gal who actually was in jail. And I mean, she was the, the miracle of all miracles. This gal actually had a court hearing. She called and said, could you be at my court hearing? And I said, I'm doing my teaching practicum. I really can't make it. And Carla was going to a treatment center graduation for another kid. And so, uh, but I said, if you get out, let it, you know, give us a call, let us know how you're doing. And if you need a place to crash for a day or two, you know, let me know. And she was 16. Okay. So that next day I got home from school, from teaching and there was an aunt, a voicemail on the answering machine. Hi, hi, Jenny. Um, I got released, but only into the care of you or Carla. So whenever you can come and get me, <laughs> And I went down to the jail and I, I, that night and they, I said, I got a voice message that there's a gal here that has been released into my care. But I said, I haven't spoken with anyone like no, her lawyer, her probation officer, like none of them called me. And I, I said to Carla, did anyone call you today? Like, did you agree to something that I don't know about? And she said, no, I didn't hear anything either. And so they said, well, they're all in their cells for the night. It was about maybe 8 or 8.30. But, but I said, can I see the paperwork? And they pulled out this court order, and it said to be released under the care of Jenny Schatz or Carla Dickinson to reside at 515 East 29th Avenue or East 12th Avenue, curfew at 10 p.m. weekdays, midnight oh weekends. And literally, it was illegal for her to stay anywhere but our house, like... She could be wow. arrested if she wasn't in our home at night. And we would have had to go back. We would have had to go into court to change this order. So, um, you know, I don't know in retrospect if we had we would have agreed to it if we had been asked. But we just were like, <laughs> this is obviously I've never before or since heard of them releasing a minor to somebody without even talking to them. But I was at the, I think because I had spent a couple of years down at the courthouse so often that mm. judges and lawyers knew who I was and must have 
taken her word for it that she could stay with her youth worker. I don't know. So I'm just I'm just curious, Jenny. Did you after that go back down mm-hmm. to the courthouse and say, "Hey guys, could you actually ask me first before you do this in the future?" <laughs> the house I, is getting full. <laughs> yeah, I. You know what? I actually didn't. I think we. It, I don't even know if I would have had time to to do that. I mean, I was in a practicum Monday to Friday. I wasn't even available during work wow. hours for that season, right? So yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I didn't take a day off of my teaching practicum to. Ask them what happened. I'm just thinking, you know, as you are working mm-hmm. in in youth ministry in particular, which is mm-hmm. for those who know youth ministry, and speaking for myself, I have very limited experience in youth ministry. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot to get buy-in and to build the trust of youth, and that's something that just doesn't happen overnight. And I'm wondering if you can mm-hmm. speak to that a little bit of maybe not what's your secret, mm-hmm. but. How has that been for you through the years of working with an age and stage in youth that at times can be, it can be tough to get buy-in from from youth? Yeah, you know, I actually have found that the hard piece of the buy-in has been with parents because mm. back 20 years ago, a lot of the parents were residential school survivors, um, about mm. 80 to 90, 85, 80 to 90% of those that uh, were walking alongside have Indigenous background. And when white Christians were part of ripping apart families and, you know, physical and sexual abuse and malnutrition and, and, and so many of the horrific things that happened in the residential schools, when they saw a white Christian turning up at their house to pick up their child, the preconceived fears, the trauma that it would bring up, you know, was, yeah, pretty horrific. And I still, even parents or grandparents that I am in relationship with, my presence on on hard days will be a trigger uh, because mm-hmm. of who I am and who I represent. Yeah. And so yeah. the children and youth, I think at the time, you know, in the early years, didn't really understand I think the background to what had led to these things in their families, the intergenerational trauma, mm-hmm. you know, you hear stories of like Holocaust survivors who don't talk about it to their children and grandchildren. And this is similar where the impacts of that trauma was being lived out, but it wasn't being talked about. Mm-hmm. And a lot of children were just, and youth were looking for places where they felt safe, where they felt loved and secure And so, like, I actually, after I got my teaching degree, I lived in a Cree community in northern Alberta for two years. I felt like I needed to gain a better understanding of the dynamics of life that these families live in, Um, being under the Indian Act, being, having a community that's controlled at all levels by federal policy in Canada, and yet that's kept in poverty and And so I, you know, a lot of our families, the parents had migrated from reserves across the country. We had families from, you know, northern, northern BC, the island, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, you know, eventually often migrating to cities, um, hoping for better opportunities, more opportunities for their children, maybe education, employment, and yet coming in and being you know, behind the eight ball in terms of the preparation and the the education or or job training and experience 
to be able to be competitive in a lot of those areas, you know, and so in the in the inner city here, um, a lot of times too, the struggle to find housing and but but there's still a relationship with the reserve back home. And that is where they're often registered as status, uh, their home reserve. And when there's deaths, they often do travel back. Or some kids who are closer connected on holidays will spend summer sometimes with relatives on the reserve. So yeah, it just that being um, in community on Lesser Slave Lake and, and living uh, alongside um, really helped me to understand those dynamics at play. Jenny, I I have a little bit of an advantage because you and I have had conversations prior to this. Would you be willing to share a couple of stories from that very time period that you're talking about and just give us and give our listeners a little bit of an insight into quality of life? Like what, what were the physical surroundings like? Because I remember being really shocked to hear some of the things that this particular Indigenous community, and I know it's not only this one, uh, were experiencing in this day and age. It was shocking mm-hmm. to me and appalling, actually. Yeah, so I lived um, in Drift Powell from 2004 to 2006. So all services, like I say, are federally funded. And in our towns and cities, there's three levels of government, three levels of funding. Um, so, you know, the province is responsible for education and health care, for instance. And sometimes the federal government will, will provide additional fundings to add on to the funding allotments. But in, in on reserves, there is no municipal funding. There's no provincial funding. The only source of funding is federal funding, which is why it's so critical that we'd be holding our federal government accountable to supporting Indigenous communities right now, because until things change and there's a different way of relating and funding, that's the only source of any kind of income. And if there's governments that um, claw back at some of that funding, they don't have any other option like cities do where they might turn to the province for extra support or then turn to the federal government, right? But at the time, the school, the principal had told me that the school was getting about five and a half thousand dollars per kid per student to run the school while the provincial schools down the road were getting like the public schools down the road funded mm-hmm. by the province were getting eight and a half thousand per kid mm-hmm. so that's five and a half thousand compared to eight and a half thousand per kid so mm-hmm. that's two-thirds the funding so that means right off the bat how in the world can you be competitive and provide the same quality of education with two-thirds the funding? Mm-hmm. And so you have families that have gone through more trauma in some areas, three generations mm-hmm. or four generations who have been in residential schools, and they're dealing with the imp- greater impacts of trauma and you know higher odds and two-thirds the funding to provide the services and education. The other thing that I was shocked about was they only started providing special ed funding in 1999. I was shocked when I left Driftpile. I worked for a few years in the Surrey School District. Mm -hmm. And as I watched speech pathologists come into the building, 
youth workers, counselors, mm. and I saw all these services for Canadian children that were non-existent for mm -hmm. these kids. I had a kid, a teenager that struggled with speech, and thankfully, we I was able to help the, the grandmother arrange an appointment you know, encouraged her to get an appointment with a doctor and get us and then get referred to a specialist. And, hmm. and that individual is doing, you know, has has overcome that challenge. But like, you, you just can't even begin to imagine just some of the services that we hmm. just take for granted, yeah. that are at our fingertips. Yeah. So and I, I think one of the things that just strikes me from that is how, when we were starting this conversation, you mentioned poverty is systemic. Mm -hmm. And so there are systems in place that are perpetuating impoverished kind of circumstances for people. Eric, you looked like maybe you had a question there for Jenny. Yeah, I, I'm just mulling over everything that you're saying here. And I'm so appreciative for your perspective on it, Jenny. I guess the question that comes up for me is, and you said it earlier, for a lot of Indigenous peoples in Canada, there is almost like a knee-jerk reaction or there's the possibility for that knee-jerk reaction associated with the trauma that took place mm. in our history in residential schools and how the impact of that has continued on through the transmission of interge mm. intergenerational trauma. My question is, how how do you operate in a culturally sensitive way, but then also how do you operate as a Christian organization mm -hmm. fully aware of the baggage and and aware of the the really awful things that were perpetrated mm -hmm. by christian organizations mm -hmm. christian mm -hmm. groups in in the name of faith and at some points i guess just how do you hold all that is really my question mm -hmm. and how do you what are some of the conscious choices that you've made as an organization to be culturally sensitive trauma-informed and i guess maybe the word is humble to be considered and welcomed into Indigenous communities in the first place as a Christian organization? Yeah, those are really important questions. And and I think, you know, in terms of faith, you know, the word Christian is little Christ, and it's really about being a follower of Jesus. And what, what I find so tragic is that when I read the Bible, I mean, Jesus was a Jew, a minority group at the time under Roman occupation. Hmm. So Jesus was born under European occupation, the way indigenous people here in North America were. Hmm. And the only re reason they were going to Bethlehem was because of a legal decree. I mean, normally I don't think you'd choose to travel anywhere in a nine month, in your nine month of pregnancy. The whole story <laughs> is about, about occupation that dictates all aspects of Jesus' hmm. life and that has oppressed his people group, which is why they were seeking a, a savior. And, and he was born into a tribal people, you know, the 12 mm -hmm. tribes of, of Jacob, um, family groups that lived together. So actually the indigenous people in North America, mm -hmm. their, their history and their livelihood is actually more similar to the story of Jesus and the Israelite people than um, the story of European oppressors who have been able to take over a significant portion of the world and install laws that control 
the the land and and the people that were on it prior to occupation and so it's just you know Jesus was always drawn into those places of oppression whether it was the woman that was going to be stoned and freeing her from that judgment and saying you without sin cast the first stone and sending the men away or or the 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 lepers who were shunned by the community or you know he these are the places that he spent his life and he mm-hmm. you know the the early church in acts they all shared their resources and it says there was no one in need among mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. and as a church we have churches that are wealthy enough to build multi-million dollar buildings and run high-tech sound and media and programs while a few blocks away can be a local reserve that's still living in poverty. And so it's the, the church in North America is not a reflection, unfortunately, of the gospel and mm. the story of Jesus or the story of the early mm. church. And it's really heartbreaking. Mm. And I think one of the, just, you know, it took years of living in community to gain that, that trust for some family, for some parents, it took 10 years. I think you just over time, there's just a lot of experiences that you start to experience with them. And I think the trust is built when at least they feel like they're not alone, you know, mm-hmm. where, you know, you, I remember one boy in Vancouver here calling me and saying, could you come with me to children's hospital? Mm-hmm. Because my daughter dislocated my arm and it's the, it was like the second time or the third time it happened. And, and with dislocations, they do come out easier after you know Mm -hmm. but he said the first time they were asking him questions and and he could tell they were wondering if it was because of abuse and so he was scared they would take his daughter if he came back again with a similar injury and Mm -hmm. so I just went with him to the emergency room and then in the end like nobody even gave that line of questioning with me being present you know, they could see I had a really strong relationship with this individual. He had spent a lot of time in my home over the years. And yeah, it's so clear the difference of that moving into the neighborhood, mm-hmm. that, that living in community, that building relationship. I can imagine someone listening to this and saying, how do you not burn out? How do you not just, you know, mm-hmm. succumb to compassion fatigue? What, how do you take care of yourself and how do you avoid that? Well, I mean, I have burnt out at times for sure. We start, launched Inner Hope in 2007 and I, we actually opened our Inner Hope out of a home where Carla and I lived and had youth, li- up to five or five youth living with us at a time. And we were offer, so, uh, gradually adding staff and providing other supports. But by 2014, I ended up moving out and we hired house parents. And thank God there was a foundation in Abbotsford. Christians who care about these kinds of issues wanted to make a difference and bought a, let, paid the money to buy a second home so that we could mm. open a private home with house parents have one the upstairs of of the original home is now offices and community hub and so we have house parents now living in that home and that's one of the things we offer as a resource for young people who need stable housing 
Um, I live in a two-bedroom basement suite, so I do have room for one young person to stay with me. Um, mm. I do go home in the evenings and make dinner and have downtime, um, so, you know, some evenings and have time on the yeah. weekends to have. And so that's made a, a, a huge change. And uh, mm. But there are hard seasons. There's been a lot of deaths over the last few months. Um, one sibling group lost their mom and oldest brother within six days of each other. And the brother was early 40s and the mom was 59. So they're, they're young adults who are now parentless. And the brother filled in a big role as a father figure as well. So, But God is faithful. And, you know, when Jesus died, he prayed. You know, he was asking God, you know, could this, if, if, if he, for the cup to be removed from him, if at all possible, you know? And there are days where it's like, God, can can you just like <laughs> get me out of the situation? But oh, I bet the thing is, is these mm. these individuals and these families they can't just leave. Mm. I I get to go away for a week to my mom's place in Calgary or to the island, um, um, you know, Vancouver Island to visit my dad or a friend or you know, I I have holiday and escape and there are some people that never don't have those resources to ever have a day away Mm -hmm. from what they're Mm -hmm. living in and so I still have privilege and I have a massive support network and I have a church community and I have family and friends who have financial resources that could help at times and you know most of the time it's (laughs) to help you know, it's it's for the the kids, right? Mm. You know, I just am really thankful for you know the the support and the love and our being in a church community that prays for me. Um, I my community group leader, um, they they've been amazing, and you know, and she uh, made meals for me just mm. a couple weeks ago or a week ago or so mm. that I've. To help me just, yeah, she knows cooking is a stressful thing for me and it's not something I enjoy. And and when there's when you're dealing with deaths and trauma, it's just mm-hmm. one less thing to worry about. And so I've just been really blessed. to And, and thankfully, my staff team is amazing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's, there is one of them who actually was a youth who came through my doors that now is a, a program manager here for Inner Hope, it, which is a, a huge gift. To have somebody who really has lived it and understands the context. But then I have staff who are just with us for one or two years and who don't have the relationships. And so in seasons like this, even the fact that they're continuing to carry things when I might need a few days off or, you know, so all of those things kind of come together. One other thing that just strikes me, if I can just um, comment, Jenny, is I think this isn't just your work. This is your life. And I think that's what has profoundly impacted me as I have interacted with you. And so if someone is listening and thinking, man, she gives out so much. But I also know that the reality is you gain so much and you mm-hmm. have you have received so many times. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that's a beautiful part of this story that I just want to make sure that that doesn't get missed when we talk mm-hmm. about or when I hear you talk about all of these relationships. Those are back and forth relationships. That's not just about mm-hmm. you giving. Oh, thanks for mentioning that because literally mm-hmm. they've 
they're some of the biggest supporters in my life. And so when I moved in 2014 on my own, it was it was the kids that helped me load the minivan and move stuff. And they're they're actually some of the most faithful people mm-hmm. in my life that really um, lift me up. And um, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, Jenny, for our listeners who are interested in learning more about Inner Hope, where can where can people find you? Where can people learn all about mm-hmm. what you do? Yeah, so our website, www.innerhope.ca. The About page has, has some stories um, about how Inner Hope leans into issues like homelessness and aging out of foster care. And so there's some really good um, video stories. We also um, highlight our calls to action from the truth and reconciliation calls to action that that our our government has laid out. And and we've chosen two calls to action. And we actually have um, your cultural mentors. I forgot to mention, but John and Jen Johnstone, um, who live in Langley, They've come alongside us as cultural mentors. He was part of the 60s scoop um, from the Lacamal community and has, you know, been learning his language and 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 reconnected in with his community and his culture. And so he is regularly connecting in and providing opportunities to share culture with our youth and the community and also mentor staff on the history and the impacts so that we can keep that at the forefront. So, um, so we have a lot to learn. I just, I know that there are so many ways that I, I fail on a daily basis and, uh, um, ways that, that I offend, um, community members at times. And, but we're, Hmm. we're trying to be faithful as we can and, and love well. And it's really a gift. And I think as Eric mentioned earlier on, there's just a humility that I hear in the posture that you take. And I am I am grateful for you and for the work that you do. We are grateful mm-hmm. that you've been willing to spend time with us here today. And so I would just encourage anyone listening, if you have been moved by what you've heard today and you'd like to learn more, please check out Inner Hope at their website. Or you can also learn more about Inner Hope, Food for the Hungry, and other Canadian organizations who are doing healthy poverty alleviation here in Canada and internationally by checking out endingpovertytogether.org. So Jenny, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate your stories, your insights, and just the way you have shared your heart today. Just appreciate you so much. Thank you so much. To explore what your next steps could be, or find out more about Inner Hope and what other Canadians are doing about poverty, start by checking out fhcanada.org slash resources.